Bangor Worldwide has been promoting and supporting World Mission for over 85 years. Our podcasts are free of charge. You can find out more about us at www.worldwidemission.org. We hope you enjoy this talk. Well, I invite you to turn with me to John and to the fourth chapter. And I'm going to read from verse 1. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. There came a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty forever. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You're right in saying, I have no husband, for you've had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you've said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father? You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming, it is now here, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, He who is called Christ, When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman. But no one said, What do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into the town and said to the people, Come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? 
they went out of the town and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. After the two days, he departed for Galilee, for Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that, they, all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. Uh, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Um, John, and we're, here we are in John. Um, those who were not here previously must have been saying to themselves when our brother uh, said what I was doing, goodness, he went through the whole of Matthew, Mark, and, and Luke already, and, and now we've got to sit through the entire book of John. No, it, no, not at all. Um, we've been trying to say to one another that we want to think about what it means to be involved in Christ-shaped mission. And having thought on the first day about the manner of the ministry of Jesus, not crying out in the street, not drawing attention to himself, um, tender towards those who are bruised and broken, and so on. And then we thought about the message that he was declaring, uh, the king is here, the time is fulfilled, repent and believe the good news. And then yesterday we thought for a moment about the nature of that mission. There's something arbitrary about these M's, but uh, I can make it as far as today. I don't think I can do anything for tomorrow, but uh, there'll be a prize for anybody who can come up with an M for tomorrow. But, uh, um, and, and then we thought in terms of that mission um, to relieve the, the blind, to set them free, and so on. And, and now this morning, I, I thought it would be okay to use the word his method. It's not his entire method, but it is uh, his methodology in dealing certainly one-on-one -on -one in this particular context. Those of you who, like me, have lived a long time will remember that in the 60s, a fellow called Paul E. Little uh, wrote a book which uh, sold um, very, very widely, and uh, I read it as a, as a teenager. And the title of the book was How to Give Away Your Faith. If you have read this book, then you know that it was uh, grounded almost uh, entirely in the material here in John chapter 4. And John, of course, is, is particularly helpful to us in that as he gets towards the end of his, his, uh, his gospel, he, he just announces the fact that there were many more signs that Jesus did. They couldn't all be written down. It would be a vast, vast volume. Uh, but these things have been written in order that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ and that by believing, you might have life in his name. 
So the, the, the framework of John's gospel is essentially these signs, or if you like, the evidence. He says this evidence has been presented in order that men and women may then in turn believe in Christ, and then in believing in Christ that they might discover life in his name. And I find it quite helpful in reading through his gospel uh, to keep that paradigm in my mind and to realize just how John uh, marshals and, uh, and lays out his material uh, to, to that end. Now, in, in chapter 3, uh, we have uh, another encounter, uh, Jesus in an encounter with Nicodemus, uh, Nicodemus who was a, a religious man, a professional, if you like, well-educated uh, with social stature. And uh, uh, we could say that uh, Jesus in chapter 3 was dealing with a religious somebody. Here in chapter 4, uh, he's actually dealing with a religious nobody. Uh, this woman was on the opposite end of the spectrum, both in terms of her religious background, her social background, and also her moral status. Uh, the first encounter uh, in three takes place during the night with this individual, a Jew and a ruler. Now in chapter 4, this encounter takes place in the middle of the day uh, with a woman, a Samaritan, and a moral outcast. For those of you who are well-versed in Lenin and McCartney, if uh, in chapter 3 we are dealing with Father Mackenzie, then in chapter 4 we are dealing with uh, the woman in Norwegian wood who told me she worked in the morning and started to laugh, and I told her I didn't and went off and slept in the bath. So here he is dealing with Father Mackenzie who's writing sermons that no one can hear because no one comes near, and now here he deals with this lady who from all sort of sensible uh, perspectives at the, um, at the Bangor Worldwide Missionary uh, Convention would not necessarily be number one on the list for evangelism. And yet, here he is, and this is who he's dealing with. Now, what is Jesus doing? What is John telling us here? Well, he's telling us a number of things. He's already told us that God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world. We thought about that on the first morning. That would be, if you like, admonition. But instead, he sent his Son into the world in order that the world through him might be saved. That is the mission. And here in this encounter... The Lord Jesus is crossing the boundaries of both race and gender. He is breaking, if you like, the paradigm of the day, the context of Judaism, and he is actually doing what you would expect from someone who, by the end of our record, is described as the Savior of the world. Well, if he's the Savior of the world, you would expect that he would be reaching the world that he would not be working simply in narrow confines. And that is what John is telling us. Now, we have limited time each morning, and I want to be respectful of that time. And uh, I'm going to say to you that uh, this, if you like, is a, is a thumbnail sketch, uh, and you can go and, uh, and color in much of the background where you uh, say to yourself, I wish he had expounded on that, or I wish he had followed through on that. Uh, you can determine why I didn't, in some cases, because I don't really know what it means, and in other cases, because I think it's extraneous to our central purpose. So, what are we dealing with? First of all, that he is dealing with a Samaritan, a Samaritan. 
All we really need to know about this is that Samaritans were racial and religious half-breeds. They were a combination of things, an amalgamation of ideas that was neither true to the foundations of Judaism, nor was it particularly true to the expressions that they were now making. And in speaking to this Samaritan woman, in coming to this place, and incidentally, you will notice that it says that he had to pass through Samaria. He must pass through Samaria. And usually when somebody is preaching on this, they take about 20 minutes uh, trying to explain why he must pass through Samaria. And, and uh, I've never really been very convinced by that. Uh, all that he was doing, he was doing under the direction of God. Every encounter was under his sovereign purpose. So there was, if you like, a divine must to all that Christ was doing, but it may actually be simply a commentary on the geography and the, and the uh, chronology of the time. Uh, you, can, you can do with that as you choose. What is being made clear, as I say, is that Jesus is not simply the Messiah of narrow Jewish expectations. He is the world's Redeemer. He is the world's Redeemer. And so, when you read, for example, the prophets and the Word of God from, uh, from the lips of God, from the mouth of God, through the servants of God, for example, classically, Isaiah 45, turn to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. That is an unbelievable dramatic statement. From, all, from out of all of eternity, the creator of the universe speaks into his world and issues the call to the nations, promises to his son, Jesus, that he will receive the inheritance of the nations, assures him that that plan which he has purposed from all of eternity will be brought to completion on that day when the company is gathered, as some of us look to see on Monday night. And it is on account of that that Jesus uh, then is exhorting his disciples, his followers, to go into Jerusalem and Judea, sending them out to the very ends of the earth. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. That he has given him a name that is above every name. That one day at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. It is that foundational assurance which underpins the call of God to do what we've been asked to do, and the assurance that we've been given that the exclusive claims of Jesus, and they are exclusive claims, are set in the framework, if you like, of an expansive call that the call of God reaches way and beyond. Let me just speak to a couple of you uh, that, for whom this may apply. Um, I, I'm, I'm running up against a, a number of uh, young men, and I have nobody in mind because this is not in response to someone I've met here. But there are a number of young men who I, I, in ministry have got themselves, if I may put it uh, uh, with decorum, have got themselves tied up in their theological underwear. And, and, and they need to get unentangled if they're going to be effectively involved in reaching the world for Jesus Christ. Let, let me give you a quote from John Murray, the late John Murray from Westminster. Um, along the lines of what we've been saying, the passion for missions 
we lose sight of when we lose sight of the grandeur of the evangel. It is a fact, he says, that many, persuaded as they rightly are, of the particularism of the plan of salvation and of his various corollaries, many have found it difficult to proclaim the full, free, and unrestricted overture of gospel grace. They have labored under inhibitions arising from fear that in doing so, they would impinge upon the sovereignty of God in his saving purposes and operations. The result is that though formally assenting to the free offer of the gospel, they lack freedom in the presentation of its appeal and its demand. In common parlance, they are concerned lest the non-elect actually get converted. And so you find that at the point where the free call and offer of the gospel for men and women to do as Jesus said, to repent and to believe the gospel, they stumble at that point. And they and their listeners are left confused as to how this is to be. Uh, our responsibility is in preaching to make clear the immensity of God's love for sinners, the call of the Scriptures for a sinner to repent and believe, and it is none of our business to articulate our views on the nature and the extent of the atonement. That is for the PhD students. The rest of you can just relax, and I'll get back on track. First of all, he is addressing a Samaritan. It gets better. He is addressing a Samaritan woman, a Samaritan woman, because rabbis, as you know, wouldn't preach the law to a woman. From their perspective, women were inferior in every way. You know, the Jewish prayer of the morning is a true prayer prayed by the rabbis. Blessed art thou, O Lord, who has not made me a woman or a Gentile. An occasion of thanks. Now, that perspective is alive and well in many non-Christian cultures today. And that perspective was set in the psyche of Jesus' own disciples. That's why, if you listen carefully while I was trying to read properly, the disciples came back and they marveled that he was talking with a woman. With a woman. This isn't what happens. He's talking with a Samaritan. He's talking with a Samaritan woman. It gets even more uh, convoluted in that he is talking with an ostracized Samaritan woman. It was challenging not only from the point of view that she was not a Jew. She was therefore an outsider in relationship to her race and to her gender, but also as it related to her way of life, as it related to her moral propensities. She'd had five husbands and a live-in lover. Uh, the encounter takes place at the sixth hour, that is noon, in the middle of the day. Who goes out with a big water pot in the middle of the day? If we know anything of Eastern custom, we know that because of the extremity of temperatures, uh, the, 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 the drawing of water would either be first thing in the morning before the sun was up, or last thing in the evening as the sun had set, so that they might avoid these things. 
How strange it is that there would be one lady at that well in the middle of the day, unless, of course, none of the other ladies in the town wanted anything to do with her. And she found herself alone in that context. Jesus had not come to the well uh, in order to condemn her, but to save her. He hadn't come to the well in order to affirm her in her sorry state. He doesn't come to the well and say, you know, I know you're a bit messed up, but don't worry about it. No, he's going to deal with it far more carefully than that. He's coming to offer her living water. Living water. I, I love the beginning of this. I, I think you do too, don't you? Uh, the, the, the ability to engage people in conversation and do it uh, kindly and, and purposefully and not obnoxiously is, is a real art. Uh, some are better equipped for it than others. Some of us stumble over it. I met some Campus Crusade uh, workers. I know you can't call them that anymore, but they are. And uh, I was talking yesterday about what they're doing and, and how they're doing it. And, and they were explaining to me that although uh, my experience of Campus Crusade at the University of Aberystwyth in the, in the 60s uh, is, is somewhat different from the approach now, but the, but the whole point is to engage people in such a way that we might both intrigue them and entreat them and draw them in. And so, what an opening gambit. Uh, could I have a drink of water, please? And then, of course, her reply, and then the sort of enigmatic response of Jesus that leads her further in. Uh, why would you ask me for a drink? Well, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that's asking you for a drink, then you would ask him for a drink, and if you got a drink from him, you'd never need another drink in your life. Well, that's intriguing. That leaves a lot of material to cover, and of course it does. Now, remember, Jesus comes to this as a Jewish man who's aware of the story of the Old Testament. Jesus knew the Old Testament. He had to. And so, he knew that the prophet Jeremiah had spoken about broken cisterns that can't hold water. He knew that a woman like this, who had found herself in this situation— was aware of that reality. You see, when we go to our friends and neighbors, wherever they are, with the story of the gospel, we know certain things about them that they're not prepared to accept about themselves. For example, we know that God has set eternity in their hearts. They, they, they may deny eternity. I have men in my community that say, when you're dead, you're dead. I tell them, no, you're dead wrong. You're going to find out how wrong you are, but you are wrong. Because and the reason that you even think about that and try to imagine what that might be to be dead is because of the fact that God has set eternity in your hearts. So that the longing in the heart of somebody for that which they do not know, that, that reaching out for significance, that reaching out for meaning, for purpose, that in, in the nihilism that is represented in our, in our 21st century, epitomized in, 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 in that little guy Woody Allen, who is, is as afraid of death as anybody I've ever listened to. You know, he says, I don't want to live on in your memory. I want to live on in my flat. It's not that I'm afraid to die. It's just that I don't want to be there when it happens. The broken cisterns, trying to fill them up with position or prestige or with uh, exercise and, 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 and so on. All, all of it. The brother says, we've got more gods than we've got, uh, you know, uh, than whatever it was. 
I've got news for you. So do we. So do we. And fascinatingly, the high streets of America are filled with some of the gods that you have exported from India and from Asia. And because of the depletion of an understanding of the living God in Western culture, there is a longing on the part of people in Western culture for the very things that you're trying to tell the folks in your country do not answer. It's fascinating, isn't it? You can find it here. You can find it here. Don't kid yourself that yoga is just exercise. If you've ever been to Varanasi, if you've ever seen those folks teaching those boys, if you've ever seen the engagement, if you like, the disengagement of their minds to create the context in which they find themselves, you will know that that is not the case. The self-depleting, joy-killing disappointments that are found in substitute gods. They're all dry. The wells are all dry. They're all broken because the only true spring of living water is found in Jesus Christ. And the reason for the thirst on the part of men and women is on account of the fact that we have rebelled against God and that we have then uh, introduced substitutes that are more amenable to our expectations. Um, um, Wiesel, George Wiesel, that is, in his introduction to a book called The Light of the World, uh, which I might as well just admit to you was written by uh, Pope Benedict of the 16th. The people say, Begg was reading a book by the Pope. Yeah, I was, actually, because I want to find out what this fellow was on about. But anyway, this is the introduction to the book. He says, what we're dealing with now is a world that has lost its story. A world in which the progress promised by the humanisms of the past three centuries is now gravely threatened by understanding of the human person that reduces our humanity to a conjuries of chemical accidents, a humanity with no intentional origin, no noble destiny, and thus no path to take through history. Do you get that? No intentional origin, no ultimate destiny, and therefore no pass through history. How can, you, how can you bring up a generation of young people who are telling them that they are born without reason, they prolong themselves by chance, and they die and go into oblivion, and then expect them to make sense of their existence. Let me tell you, the women at the well are everywhere, and the boys at the well. They're at the bus stop. They're on the plane. They're in the fish and chip shop. They are scattered around the universe, and Jesus, in the person of his followers, comes to the bus stops, to the chip shops, to the locations, to be the very vehicle of the truth of God through the lips of the servant of God, setting forward the Son of God. So, what does he do? He, he tells her then about this living water. She responds in—he's speaking, speaking in spiritual terms. She responds in physical and material terms. Well, you shouldn't feel bad about that, lady, because that's exactly what, uh, what the religious fellow in chapter 3 did as well. You must be born again. Spiritual terms, 
Nicodemus says, how can I be born again into my mother's womb? Now he says, living water? She says, well, I like living water. This pot's heavy, and I got to come out here every day, and I don't want to come back every day. And she doesn't get it. So what does he do? He says, well, let me ask you to do something. Go and call your husband. Remember when, remember when we talked, two of you who remember, when we said, why did Jesus say to the man let down through the roof, your sins are forgiven you? And the answer we said was because he was putting his finger on that man and every man and woman's real need, the need for forgiveness. How does Jesus do that here? He does it with a simple request. He says, go and call your husband. Now, I wish I had a video of this because I'd like to know how she says these few words in response. Do you think she said it defiantly? I have a sneaking suspicion she didn't. I think she looked down and she said, I, I have no husband. And then Jesus says, you know, I know that. You've had five and you're living with a guy. But he doesn't do what the Pharisees do. The Pharisees the religious boys, they like to squeeze the gory details out of people. They like to unpack this, you see. No, oh, what a kind and tender shepherd Jesus is. Well, of course, putting his finger on this, the woman now realizes that she is dealing with somebody beyond her ken. She says to him, I perceive that you are a prophet. She started by saying, I can, uh, why is it that you're a Jew and a man? Now he says, I can see that you're a prophet. And then she says, let's have a conversation about, uh, about worship. Now, Paul Little in his book, and I bought this for a long time because I thought it sounded good. Little in his book says, what you have here is a classic digression. That because Jesus has put his finger on the issue, she now is trying to evade the issue. So she wants to have a conversation about something that takes it out from the realm. And that may well be the case. In other words, I don't want to talk about the fact of what's going on in my, in my personal life. So I would like to know what is the deal here. You've got Gerizim, and we've got Gerizim, you've got Jerusalem, and so on. I'm more inclined to this perspective. And I only say it because I've thought it, but I haven't found anyone to substantiate it, so there's not much in it. I think, I think she says to herself, this man's got me. I'm going to ask him, where do you go to get yourself fixed? Where do you go to get cleansing? Where do you go for forgiveness? Our, our, our story is you go to Gerizim. Your story is you go to Jerusalem. Where do you have to go? And what does Jesus say? He says, listen, it's actually not about the place that you have to go, but it is about the wonder of the fact that the God to whom you go is the God who has come to you. And she's about to discover that that God is actually offering her the water at the well in the person of his dearly beloved son. Now, I leave it to you to think that out. 
You know, this verse is trotted out all the time about worshiping in spirit and in truth. And usually when people talk about this, they, what, they, what they sort of are saying is that, you know, anybody can worship God anywhere as long as they're genuine and sincere. Though that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. So as long as you're sincere and, and good about it, it doesn't really matter. That's not what it's saying. What Jesus is actually saying is this. Only those who receive the Holy Spirit can worship him at all. Only those who receive the Spirit. To worship God in spirit is not within our human capabilities. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. By nature, we seek substitute gods. By nature, we seek to answer the great thirsts of our lives by finding it somewhere else. It is not, it, the, 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 there is no, the, 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 there's no way for, God is beyond the realm of our intuitive radar. We, we cannot just go and engage him. Jesus, my Savior, to Bethlehem came, born in a manger to sorrow and shame. And oh, it was wonderful, blessed be his name, seeking for me, for me. And here in this encounter in the middle of the day with an ostracized Samaritan woman, this reality is taking place. It takes place again and again. Our brother's going to talk about it tonight. He's going to tell us of others. You could tell of others. You could come up here and explain how somebody gave you a book, how perhaps for a long time you were absolutely opposed to it all, how you would come and, and, and wonder why the people sang, and you thought the songs were silly, and the message was, uh, it was only an excuse for you to have 40 winks. And then all of a sudden, you, it was like waking up as a, as a child in the morning for school when you're, when you're asleep. And you think you heard a noise. And then you realize it was a noise. And you realize it was a voice. And then you realize it was a voice calling. And then you realize it was a voice calling your name. You see, that's what's happening. It was just like a voice. There's a voice calling. A voice inviting. A voice calling your name, Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus. Come down. This woman, what a drama. Oh, our time is pretty well gone. So, this is the start of a Bible study that you can do on your own uh, later, later on in life. Um, meanwhile, the disciples, whom we've come to appreciate over these few days, they come back, and true to form, uh, they are completely preoccupied with their visit to Kentucky Fried Chicken. And, and the disciples uh, said, Jesus, uh, we don't really know what's going on here, but why don't you uh, have something to eat? Jesus says, I have food to eat that you do not know. Here we go again. Jesus is speaking spiritual terms. Nicodemus didn't get it. She didn't get it. And the jolly disciples don't get it either. They look at each other and say, does somebody, somebody else go and get him something to eat? Jesus says, no, you don't get it. And then that amazing little section, you know, there are four months uh, to the harvest, but I tell you, you don't have to wait for four months. You can lift up your eyes now, and you can look, and you can see that the fields are, are white for harvest. This little section about reaping and sowing, is, it, it should make us think, I think, in part of uh, 
12, uh, 24, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone, but if it dies, it bears much fruit. John is writing his gospel after the, re the death and resurrection of Jesus, only because Jesus so sowed the seed of his life at the cross and in his death, because that took place, because that grain of wheat fell into the ground and died, eternal life may be reaped by those who go out to proclaim that same message. And so, as you know, off she, off she went. Off she went into the town, leaving her water pot. Maybe she was coming back for it. Maybe she thought she would never make use of it again. Can you imagine when she went into the town? You know, because the way you say things, uh, you know, it rings, doesn't it? Uh, she goes back into the... So she's going down the main street here in, in you know, in, in the equivalent in Syker, and the people are coming out from their shopping and everything. She says, I'd like you to come and see a man. Now, the cynical men are going, are you kidding me? And one of them says to his friend, I think... I think she's talking about number seven. I mean, you want us to come and see a man? You've had five men, you've got another guy, now you want No, this is a different man. I want you to come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. I want you to come and see a man who not only told me everything I ever did, but he told me everything that I ever did was under the rubric of his great saving purpose. And so they went out. The impact of a solitary life, of a messed up Samaritan woman who was bold enough and brave enough to go back into her community and just say it straight in relationship to Jesus. Now, I, I wouldn't say I have a vivid imagination, but I have an imagination. It helps. It's good because then I can, I can imagine you know, creatures in my back garden and everything in the night, and uh, see them, dwarfs and little, all the little things here in the hardware store. I love them all, you know, and I tell my grandchildren, they're moving around, they are. <laughs> but that was Tolkien, Tolkien said that, didn't he? Tolkien said, you know, the power of fairy stories, the reason that fairy stories are powerful all the way through into your, into your dotage, it's because they speak about, you know, the engagement with uh, nature, the triumph of, of, of good over evil. And then he says, but the story of Jesus Christ is not a fairy story. The story of Jesus Christ is the reality towards which all the fairy stories point. She didn't go back into town with a fairy story. And here's where my imagination goes. I wonder, did she go to Jerusalem? on the day the sky turned black. Another midday encounter. I wonder, did she stand there? I wonder, did she see the man she'd met at the well? Did she hear him say, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. I wonder, did she hear him say, it is finished? And then say to herself, that must be why he said to me when we had that conversation, when he said to me, I've got you covered. I didn't fully understand what he meant, but I understand it now. 
the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. A record white clean. A righteousness not of our own. He hung in shame in order that the ostracized Samaritan woman and all like her may stand in glory. That's the message we have. That's the message. It's good news. It's really good. Really good. Father, thank you. Lord, there's so much of this story left on the table. We pray that at least our brief consideration now may yield benefit in our lives. We like to think of that woman standing there and perhaps looking up on that scene and saying, my faith looks up to thee, O Lamb of Calvary, Savior divine. Fuel our hearts again, Lord, we pray, and stir us up by way of pure remembrance, for we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. We trust you've enjoyed this podcast. If you'd like to make a donation to support the work of Bangor Worldwide, please visit www.worldwidemission.org slash donate.